In this episode, I am joined by Eric Barzeski. Eric is an excellent golf coach whom I have personally worked with on my own game through video analysis of swings recorded at driving range sessions. These were absolutely fantastic. I first learned about Eric after reading the book he co-authored, Lowest Score Wins. I reached out to Eric to let him know how impressed I was by the book and we have stayed in contact since discussing a wide range of golf improvement related topics. I am always impressed with Eric's knowledge, so was glad to finally have him as a guest on the podcast. Just before we get started, a reminder that Fit for Golf has its own app. Golfers of all ages and all standards are making huge strides in their golf performance, fitness, and health. There are programs to suit everyone and an abundance of material to suit people working out at home or in the gym. Visit fitforgolf.blog forward slash app to find out more. You can get 20% off a 12-month subscription with the code FFGPOD. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a rating and review in the App Store is really helpful. And as always, please let me know if you have any questions or feedback. Now to Eric Barzeski. To get started, can you please provide us with your background and what you are currently doing in the world of golf? Well, I'm a full-time golf instructor at Golf Evolution here in Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, so I teach a lot of lessons, uh, work with a lot of players locally and from you know the tri-state Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York area. I coach the Penn State Baron golf team to scratch the competitive itch a little bit. Um, I took up golf pretty late in life as far as a lot of golfers or instructors go. I didn't start really playing until I was 15. Uh, I played soccer from when I was three on. Played varsity soccer as a freshman and then decided I didn't like team sports as much uh, anymore. And so golf was really appealing. I played some tennis and some baseball between, um, but still play soccer every day. It's still my original sport, but uh, started playing golf when I was 15. Uh, we won three straight conference championships in a small conference in high school and uh, didn't play in college for various reasons, but, uh, you know, got into instruction 11 years ago or so and have been doing that since. Excellent. Um, a lot of the golfers listening to this podcast are very enthusiastic and have big goals. For an example, an 18 handicap might want to get to single figures or a 10 handicap might want to get to scratch. If one of these golfers came to you for guidance, what would the process look like? So as with any golfer that comes to me for a lesson, you know, the first thing that I would do is you have to kind of assess. I mean, I talk with them first, but, you know, obviously we get their goals. We figure out what, what their history is, what other sports they've played, any limitations, you know, I'll, I'll tend to ask them. I don't do a physical screen like a lot of people do at first because most people, even if they've had a surgery or something, I'll ask them if, if they have limitations and they'll usually be pretty forthright, like, oh, I had this knee replaced or, or so on. And so I'm aware of those things. But most golfers that think oftentimes will be like, oh, I can't turn very far and stuff like that. I find that they can. They just don't for whatever reason in their golf swing. So I don't do a lot of physical screens, but I assess what they do currently. And one of the things that I think I do well is prioritize um, and in my mind, I kind of see the roadmap, you know, for what they need to work on. Um, I will tell some golfers when they come in, you might be able to list the 17 things that are good or bad or, or 
sorry, the 17 things that you don't like about your golf swing, and you might be right about nine or 10 of them. Um, but if I fix number one, the biggest priority thing or something like that, oftentimes a lot of those other ones kind of melt away or at least become much less of a priority. Golfers can only really work on one thing at a time, sometimes two little pieces at a time. So I try to really prioritize and, and figure out what's the biggest thing to attack right away. And a lot of the other ones will melt away. Um, I don't really have necessarily a prescribed process to, to, you know, write out or anything, but, you know, we, we look at what the golfer's doing, what they want to do, what they're capable of doing and, and kind of work from there. I don't teach one swing, um, or anything like that. I have players that are very upright, very flat or shallow, depending on what you want to call it. You know, I have people that fade the ball. I have people that draw the ball, um, all kinds of things. Everyone's, you know, we all have two arms and two legs and have a lot of similarities in our bodies, but also everyone has a different background, a different body type and, and so on. So, um, along the way, you know, we, we keep prioritizing and kind of keep in mind what the biggest priority is at any time. I'm big on not moving on too quickly, you know, just because you can do something one time or for even one lesson, maybe, uh, you know, if you come back in two weeks, you're probably still going to be working on that same thing for a while. Um, so I try not to go too quickly. Uh, but you know, it's just constant reassessment, reevaluation and reprioritization. Um, I tell a lot of golfers that the first two or three things that they work on are often the things that they always tend to work on. I think you see that in your swing. You know, I've, I've helped you out a little bit here and there, but um, along with some other people that you worked with. And, you know, the things that you work on in your swing are things that you almost always have a checklist of that you kind of keep in mind. And tour players that are the same way, they will almost always have a checklist of these two or three things that maybe four things that when stuff starts to go awry, they look at those first. For some of them, it's just you know grip or alignment, um, but then they have some things that they do dynamically in their swing that they always try to keep them an eye on. So, um, for some of my students, honestly, they the the ones that don't have a ton of time, like after a while, it becomes okay. We've identified these three things. We know how to fix them. We're kind of working on them, and we kind of keep working on those things. You know, they just they don't have a lot of time. So so maybe this one slips back and. You know, they're kind of using me to keep them between the guardrails a little bit. Um, and for some of my other students that have more time, my juniors and stuff like that, that can improve more rapidly or have more time to work at it, you know, we get into exploring more things. And both are interesting and both are, you know, exciting. It's, it's good to keep a guy that, you know, has three kids all of a sudden, you know, uh, still shooting 75, you know, without having a whole lot of time to work on his game during a week. So, um that can be just as exciting as getting a junior to shoot 68 or break 80 for the first time or, or whatever. The first thing you kind of touched on there was how a lot of your players have different swings and you don't teach any type of particular model. Would you say that sort of the main area of coaching that you delve into is improved ball striking that's the main reason why players are coming to you maybe either based on your reputation or sort of the facility you work out of is that sort of your let's say bread and butter 
As opposed to like short game and putting and stuff? Or, yeah, as, or... as, as opposed to, you know, digging into like, are you looking at players' stats? Are you talking to them about exactly how they'll structure their different amounts of practice on each part of the game? Going right. through even like on course situations, like people people listening don't know, you know, maybe exactly what type of facility you work in or... right. You know, um, if it's on a golf course, if it's in a simulator, those types of things. Yeah, so we teach at Golf Evolution downtown. I live in Erie, Pennsylvania, so we have winter here. Um, it's sometimes not too bad, but, you know, nobody wants to play golf even when it's 35 degrees outside sometimes. So uh, we teach inside. During the summer, though, I can teach outside. We have several courses nearby, so uh, I do get outside for playing lessons. We have an indoor putting green that's 2,000 square feet, so we do short game and um, chipping and putting lessons inside as well. Uh, I'm involved with ShotScope a bit, so we do have a lot of students that are using ShotScope for some strokes gain data and some things like that. And, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit later, I think, uh, when we talk about, like, low score wins and stuff. But um, certainly I like to look at the whole game that, that someone has. So the assessment, you know, is often early starts with ball striking because that's what the student will come in to say, oh, I fat everything or you know i just i always slice you know or, or whatever so often that's the first thing and as you know that's one of the biggest areas where people can and need to improve um people are better putters and have a better short game than they generally think of course you get the exceptions uh, <laughs> you get the terrible terrible putters um and stuff like that now and then but uh you can catch that in an assessment so you know usually the first couple lessons are full swing and then as they're working on that first full swing piece um, a lot of times we mix in some short game and putting lessons. Uh, I love doing playing lessons. I have a hard time pricing them because they never feel like I'm doing all that much work. You know, I'm just kind of out there walking around, feeling like, yeah, pointing out stuff that seems obvious to me that um, that students love them, and so that's great. But like, it doesn't feel like a whole lot of work. So uh, they're tough to price, but they're they're very helpful when we can do them. And so yeah, that yeah, we get outside and do all kinds of stuff. You know, people are. Uh, a lot of stuff I take for granted, um, just having done stuff for a while and, and written the book and always kind of played that way and always been somewhat analytical and and whatnot. Uh, you know, stuff that I take for granted is, is new to a lot of people. So um, that's still good to see and can be helpful. Yeah, and I suppose, too, with the college team that you're coaching, you're definitely a more golf coach than just swing instructor, which I think is an important differentiation for for people who are who are giving golf instruction. Yeah, we'll get into it later. But the bait, the short thing there is, you know, as you can probably imagine, you know, junior golfers and, and college golfers always think, oh, I want to, I got an eight iron in my hands, I need to attack the flag, you know, uh, I need more birdies, you know, no, you need to make fewer sevens. Uh, buddy, yeah. you know, stop, stop hitting it in the creek, stop hitting it out of bounds, you know, stop doing all that stuff. So it's a, it's a different mindset, certainly when you're playing, um, and that we have a very short season too. So it's always interesting to me to see, okay, is this guy going to play immediately in the fall or do I want to like put him into kind of a longer term plan so he can start to get ready for next fall? You know, if he's a freshman, that's on the bubble of like being, you know, a five or seven guy or something like that. Um, so that's always interesting because, you know, they have to they have to play and they have to play pretty well right away. So they don't have a whole lot of time to mess around with stuff that's too big. So that's always interesting. But, yeah. What are the biggest mistakes you see golfers make in their quest for improvement? 
Well, so there's the obvious ones, you know, they go on YouTube and try to become, you know, their own instructor, which I did for a while, you know, honestly, until I, until I met up with Dave, uh, you know, I kind of skipped over it um, earlier, but I didn't have any plans to be a golf instructor ever until uh, I took lessons with Dave a long time ago and, you know, 2008, 2009, and realized that golf instruction did not have to be just a bunch of like, let me just say a bunch of stuff. And if one of those things clicks and makes the guy better then cool, you know, it taught me that there's cause and effect uh, to the golf swing and that there's, there could be a system or a method or, or, you know, something that where you could actually say, okay, if I do this, then this will happen and, and things like that. So, um, golf instructors that go on, or golf golfers that go on YouTube and try to become their own instructor. It's like, you know, like they say, lawyers say, the worst client is the one who's trying to represent himself. Um, he has both an idiot for a client and a, and a lawyer at that point, you know? So like, it's my full-time job. I spend, you know, if you ask my wife, 80 hours a week on this stuff. So, uh, you're probably not going to figure out what you're doing wrong just by looking at YouTube videos. And I have YouTube videos, but realistically, everyone should start off with like a 20 minute disclaimer about like, this video is for you if you meet these very, very, very specific criteria. Otherwise, go find something else. So, you know, it's always tough to, to look at YouTube. Um, I think amateurs, as a general rule, don't know how to practice. And we can talk about that. We'll talk about that a little bit later, I think. But most people go too fast. Most people think that if they understand something in their brain, they can do it. You know, they're like, oh, did I do it? No, because you went at 100% speed. Uh, and you just thought you did something different. So uh, most amateurs don't know how to practice and they go too fast when they're trying to make changes. And we'll talk about that a bit, I think. What, what exactly um, do you mean by too fast? Uh, not only too fast in both ways uh, or in two ways. Number one, they make swings that are too fast. And number two, they try to move on to the next thing too fat, too quickly. You know, uh, there are some things that take a while to work on, you know, as, as I think, you know, with your own swing, you know, you have a list of a few things that you've been working on and they get better and better and better and better over time, but they never quite get to where you want them. Certainly not in a week, you know, it takes a, it takes a while. So, um, too fast in those two ways. Uh, I tell my juniors, especially that if I could teach them one thing about golf, it would be kind of how to practice and how to make improvements. Um, because even if in 30 years and they live in Tallahassee or something like that, and they go to a golf instructor there, he will be able to make them better because they will know how to practice and they will know how to take what he gives them, uh, and turn it into an actual change. Um, and then I tell them the second biggest mistake that a lot of people make is that they pull their arms around their body too much in the search for depth or the search to hit a draw or something like that. And so, I tell a lot of the juniors, especially that the body carries the club around your body and the arms are responsible for only up and down because I see a lot of people who get their trail elbow too far around behind or beside them. Uh, and from there it's, it's really tough to get back to a decent impact position. So, um, those are the, those are some of the biggest things, uh, you've, you could name others, you know, people that try to they want more lag, they flip at impact, so they try to hold the lag. You know, that's a fairly common mistake you see from a lot of people. There's nothing being 
held or like locked in or something in the golf swing. It should be fairly athletic motion, um, some things like that. But those are the big ones, you know, going too fast, trying to be their own instructor, um, pulling the arms around behind them, all kinds of you know stuff like that. What would you say about the length of time that golfers maybe think it will take them to get to the level they want versus how long it generally tends to take? I think that they always underestimate the time. You know, I'm not one to say, and I've never been one to say, and I've always hated the saying of like, oh, we need to tear down your golf swing and rebuild it. I think that's bogus. I think if you can come to me and you shoot, 86 you are a really good golfer already golf is ridiculously difficult um you've figured out a lot of stuff to make the ball go in the hole in 85 shots over 18 holes and 6800 yards or whatever you play um golf is really difficult and you do a pretty darn good job already um so a lot of people think that golf my wife's a math teacher and i tell her you know golf is not like math if i teach you how to add you can pretty much, you, you know how to add. If I give you 14 plus 27, it might take you a little bit longer than someone who's good at math, who has been doing it for longer, but you'll get the right answer. Um, even if you literally have to count and add them up if once you know what adding is. Golf isn't like that, of course. No real sport is because it's not just learning something, it's training something as well, right? You have to train your body. Your, your, your muscles are kind of dumb. Uh, they, they like to do things the way they've always solved that old problem, especially when you have habits, you know, so it takes a long time to change a habit. You know, they, there's the studies out there that say, you know, if you want to quit smoking or, or whatever, some of those habits, it takes 21 days of, you know, or something of doing the other thing uh, every day. But golf takes longer than 21 days because, you know, someone has made thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of swings. And it doesn't require the same number of swings to change it, but it requires, you know, more than a week. Okay, so, yeah. Um, I think that I, I will tell my students fairly often that I would rather see them go to the range. And it doesn't mean you have to, like, kill yourself, you know, hitting thousands of balls again, because I tell them I would rather see them make, in one session... Uh, the, the range here gives out 35 balls per drop, and so a lot of times people will go get 70 or 105 golf balls and just hit them all, and it'll take them 45 minutes. And it's like, how'd you hit 105 balls in 40, you know, half hour, 45 minutes? Um, I would rather see them go spend a little bit less money, get 35 golf balls. What I do is tell them to count out the five best ones, save those for the end, and it should take them about 45 minutes maybe to hit those 30 golf balls. And if they did a really good job with that, then they can do whatever they want with the last five, the really good ones. You know, smash them with their driver, try to hit it over the fence, do do whatever, you know, with those. Um, but if you can give me 30 A-plus or A or even A-minus swings where you know what little mistake you made and you can kind of correct it quickly, uh, I think that's better in a lot of, lot of a lot of ways. And you can get better faster than someone who makes 150 C-minus swings in that same time or something like that. Uh, I have a lot of golfers that, especially over the winter, um, they might not have a membership to our indoor academy, so they have to deal with trying to work at home. Not all of them can get their wife to park the car out of the garage or something, so they can't hit balls in their garage. 
um, or whatever. So I will give them stuff that they could do in five or ten minutes a day in their bathroom mirror or, um, you know, with a spatula in their hand as they're making dinner or whatever. So you don't have to, like, kill yourself to work really hard at golf. What you do have to do is be kind of focused and um, really work smarter and not harder. I mean, obviously both is great, but uh, if you can only have one, I'd rather you work smart. Um, and I will tell people the fastest way to get there is to kind of go slow and really focus and really make good golf swings instead of at whatever speed is required for you to make that A or A-plus swing rather than to just go fast and make a bunch of C-minus swings. So let's dig into exactly how you like golfers to practice. Obviously, you've done your assessment. You've maybe given them a lesson or two. And you've come up with a couple of what you perceive to be key things in their swing that are worth working on. What type of, I guess, practice prescription do you give in terms of, you've mentioned maybe making swings that are a little bit slower. Do you like a lot of exaggeration? What do you like people to do for feedback? Do you like them to take video and check themselves once you've given them a lesson? Can you dig into how how you run that side of things, basically? Yeah, I. there's no... We have to talk in generalities when we when we do this, right? Everyone's a little bit different. Everyone's working on slightly different things. And so, you know, one of the problems in discussing this, even in a podcast where people can hear tone of voice and how I'm saying things and stuff like that, is that everyone might have a slightly different picture in their mind of, like, what problem a student might have and how they might go about it. Um, but in general, uh, I read the book The Talent Code a while ago, and there's, there's a lot of books like it and stuff like that. And it one part that stood out to me, uh, we've always found that musicians, for example, are really, really good at getting better at golf. Um, and there's one part of the talent code where it talked about, I think probably one of these 14 year old violinists at some, you know, music school in Connecticut or something like that. Uh, and it said when she got a new piece of music, if you said, okay, just play it. A lay person like me who doesn't know a whole lot about violin music, they would think like, oh, yeah, I recognize that song. That person did pretty good. You know, I, yeah, okay. You know, but it wouldn't be up to their level. And it certainly wouldn't be uh, at the level that they expect from themselves or, or at a world-class level to play in a symphony or something like that. So what that student did was she would literally play the notes in the correct order because then she was practicing like I'm not a violinist, but you have to move your fingers around and move the bow around in a certain way and stuff like that. So she was practicing those movements, and it just sounded like a bunch of notes being played very slowly in some order. Uh, and when she messed up or she, you know, fumbled like a finger movement or something like that, uh, she would start over. And she would do that for like a couple weeks. And, you know, as she got better and better at it and as she could get through the whole song, she would start to go in the right, not only in the right order, but play the notes kind of the right durations. She wasn't even worried about the duration of the notes, you know, an eighth note here, a quarter note here, a whole note, whatever. She wasn't even worried about that at first. So then it starts to sound a little bit more like a song, you know, as she keeps putting the right notes in the right order for the right duration. Uh, and after a few more weeks, it sounds like a song, but it sounds very robotic. So whatever artistic stuff that violinists have, 
um, little flourishes or whatever they do, uh, they weren't in there at all. And so the last bit, the mastery part for her, was to practice the song at the right pace and the right whatever, you know, making stuff louder and softer and all those things, um, and adding whatever flourishes in that, that violinists do. And so that whole process took her weeks, okay? And that was playing a song that if she played it the first day she got it, you, or maybe not you, maybe know more about music than I do, but me. Definitely you know, not. Yeah, that, yeah, that was pretty good, you know? The first time she plays it, you'd be like, oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, okay, you're, you're good. Um, but she'd be like, oh my God, that was terrible, okay? So, um I like people to do things slowly. I like people to do things in an exaggerated way. I think training your body to do things, you know, I'm not going to, I don't get into the whole like mapping, you know, coding your neurons with myelin and all that stuff. Um, I think there's something to it. I, I don't, you know, put a ton of faith in it um, or at least certainly don't discuss it a ton with students. But I think that going slow and exaggerating something and focusing on just the, the, biggest priority thing has led to my students having the biggest success. Um, it's frustrating for a student, especially when they come back and they're doing the same thing three weeks later that they will, that they were doing three weeks before. And I've certainly had lessons where I will say to people, go slow, do this, do that, and they'll come back. And I'm like, buddy, man, I got to give you the same lesson. You know, it's the same stuff. And, you know, so they get frustrated with that, you know, about themselves. And I say, you know, you know, I have to talk them down off the ledge of beating themselves up too much because golf is difficult. There's, there's almost no other sport. There's, so, it's kind of weird too that you know, adults generally don't take like learning a hobby or a recreation or something like that in anything else. I mean, some people take some tennis lessons. Nobody takes like recreational basketball lessons. Not really. I mean, they have the fantasy camps and some stuff like that, but like adults, you know, have almost stopped learning. It's it's almost weird sometimes that people take golf lessons. They're rarely uh, students. You know. Ad adults are rarely students. Right. And so I give them credit when they are coming here and they're accomplished people that have achieved things in life. Um, they have families, they have good jobs, things like that. So it's frustrating to them to feel like they are so incompetent being able to do something. So by slowing down and by exaggerating, um, they can be shown that they can do the thing, right? Sure, it's only at 40 miles an hour right now, but look, you can make this change. You can do this. So do it at this speed. You will start to feel good about yourself. You will do what we call changing the picture. And so as you keep being able to do it at that speed, you can go a little bit faster and then a little bit faster and then a little bit faster. And so then it becomes a positive feedback cycle where they're like, hey, look, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And they're not doing it at speed yet, you know, at game speed, but they're doing it. And so then they start to have positive interactions with their practice. And again, it might be five or 10 minutes a day at home. Um, they start to see the ball draw on the range, even though it's only going 100 yards, seven irons instead of 160 or something like that. So I love slow. I love exaggeration. Um, there are some lessons, you know, downswing lessons are tough to do slow. Uh, there are some downswing pieces where they're almost more fun for golfers because I'm like, look, as long as you can make the ball hook, you can hit it as hard as you want. Um, and so you'll get people that have never hooked a ball in their life hitting 50 yard hooks and, you know, exaggerating certain things with the wrists or whatever they're doing. 
uh, a ton. I'm like, do it as much as you can, and they'll just stand on the range and just hit smash hooks and be the happiest people in the world because they've never seen the ball curve to the left before. So I'm like, okay, great. You know, do that for a while, and then we'll learn to dial it in. We'll learn to figure out how much of that you need to hit it straight and make it playable. But um, that kind of goes into exaggeration too. You know, uh, I have a I have a few things drawn on the whiteboard beside my uh, desk where I beside where I teach lessons. And one of them is, and I'll try to describe it so people can, listening can understand it. I have a line that says, you now. It's like a number line. It says, you now. It's just a line. So whatever their swing looks like now, there's a line that says, you now. And then I have some dots, like 10 dots or something like that. And then it says, perfect. Not that there's ever a perfect, but let's just say that's what, our, what their goal is. There's a line that says, perfect, like 10 dots away. And then about three dots past that, there's another line that says exaggerated. So I say to them, I'll point to this thing and say, okay, so if you are here now and then you can exaggerate, we know you can probably do everything in between, including perfect. But if you never exaggerate, you're only ever kind of creeping up toward perfect, whatever perfect is for this particular thing. You don't ever even know that you can get there. You know, but if you can exaggerate, if you can go from swinging... 15 degrees left, this is a bad example of what I'm talking about, but 15 degrees left and they never swing out to the right, they don't know that they can draw the ball. But if you can get them to swing 15, from 15 degrees left to 7 right, hey, look, you can clearly do something to, to make the path shift to the right. Um, if you can go from having this risk condition to that risk condition, when the perfect one is in between, then clearly you can do the one in between. So. Exaggeration is good because, again, it kind of shows the student that they're able to do it. It gives them positive feedback. It gives them a glimpse into the fact that they can do what I'm asking them to do. If we go back to slow motion and exaggerated movements, how much emphasis do you have students put on what's actually happening with those shots? Is the goal usually more so based on are they doing the movement that you want them to, or is it more tied into the ball needs to be doing X or Y? That's a good question. It's one of those ones where the general the generalization is going to. I'm hoping people you know give us the benefit of the doubt on that, or give me the benefit of the doubt on that, because obviously there are situations where I care very very much what the ball is doing. You know, especially as they get closer and closer to what their final, you know, what I'd like it to kind of finally be. Uh, if they have a tournament coming up, you know, there's certainly different ways to practice. If someone says, hey, i got a tournament in three weeks, um, what do I need to do right now? We don't embark on like a big change for that, you know. But if Let's um, just say it's a recreational golfer, because I think that's who yeah. most of the listeners are. Let's just say they're like, look, I play golf through the season I don't have big tournaments as such, but I'm currently at 12. I'd love to be as good as a couple of my buddies that are threes and fours. I don't mind if that takes one year or five years or 10 years. Like, what is my process? How how am I going to do that? I think that's more so yeah. what the people listening are, are like. And how, how would that change it maybe? Yeah, that's a lot of them. And so as they get closer to the quote-unquote perfect version of that little piece that we're working on. The ball flight matters a lot. Um, I will tell people in a lesson, 
um, that I don't care what the first 10 balls do. I don't care if they, I'll, I'll sometimes literally say, I don't care if you miss the golf ball. Nobody misses the golf ball. Um, but just telling them, I don't care how you hit this one, just do the motion or whatever that I'm asking for as much as you possibly can. Um, you know, people that roll it inside and stuff like that, I'll show them video of Matt Wolf and say, okay, <laughs> you roll the club to here, uh, show me your version of the Matt Wolf swing. I don't care if you miss the golf ball. I mean, the club head is coming from four feet different place than they're used to it coming from. So um, just telling them I don't care if they miss it kind of frees them up to do it. So I don't care about the golf ball, what the golf ball does in the first, sometimes first five or ten swings. Now, oftentimes I say I don't care if you miss it and they flush it or they hit it really well or they hit it better than, you know, they tend to hit it before. Um, but, you know, if you have a guy that shoots 85, he mishits the ball a bit all the time. Um, he's not going to instantly get better at that. When the club head's coming from two feet different place, um, he, ha he might have to learn or relearn how to deliver it from there. Um, oftentimes you see patterns change. If a guy was shanking it all the time, he suddenly starts hitting it a little bit out of the toe because he's exaggerating things a little bit. Um, so I believe you should see a change right away or pretty darn quickly again we try to change the picture which often changes the ball strike you know in the first literally first one two three swings um and only three swings if the person's a little bit more reluctant or i haven't like really stressed how much i want them to exaggerate something uh in that first little bit but um they should see a change right away that doesn't mean they're going to be immediate uh see immediate improvement across the board you know they still have to relearn that new kind of movement pattern. I just had a conversation online uh, on Twitter with someone about immediate improvement. And while I said earlier, I, I'm not a big fan of tear down and rebuild and, you know, you have to play worse for a while. Um, most of my golfers understand to go out and play. And a lot of the things that we work on, it's like, okay, if, if this feel helps you when you're on the golf course to play better golf, um, cool, go with it. If not, and you only have time to play once a week and you don't want to like be out there trying to practice your golf swing, don't just play golf and get the ball in the hole. And the 30 full swings you make on the golf course, even if you make them quote unquote, the old way are not going to set you back that much, if at all. Um, so go out, play, get the ball around the golf course and get it in the hole. Uh, and then when you practice, go back to kind of what we were doing. So um, occasionally if you have someone that was hitting, you know, pulls and um, slices and you start to work with them um, they might start to hit some pushes that they've never hit before you know so they might play worse but hit quote-unquote kind of better shots you know because they're used to aiming at the left rough uh, to hit their their shot then maybe the first thing you do is fix the club face and so now they start suddenly hitting like pull draws which you know might go into the trees when they're aiming left um, and so you kind of fix that and then they then you shift the path over a little bit, and then they start hitting pushes. So, so there are times when you could hit the ball worse or score worse, but be hitting better shots with better mechanics and stuff too. So it's always tough because, you know, I could picture different scenarios in my head where I've seen ball striking improve immediately, you know, and tremendously, you know, pretty quickly within four or five, six balls in a lesson. And I've seen and had people work on things where 
because it's so foreign to them and feels so exaggerated that it takes a while for them to get used to delivering the club from that body position or that club head position or, or at that point in the swing or, or something like that. And there's not even necessarily any terrible consistency in that. I've made given similar changes to two different people and one picked it up right away and the other one struggled with it for a little bit. So I've learned to stop trying to guess at that kind of thing because it seems like every time I do try to guess and I say, oh, this piece in my head, I'll say, this this guy should get this pretty quick. And then that guy takes two months and then the other guy that, you know, I think will struggle with something, picks something up in, in three days and, you know, is like, oh, okay, now what? So... Um, I try not to guess at that stuff anymore. Um, everyone's a little bit different. And uh, so. Everything we've talked about so far is about trying to learn a movement pattern and improve mm -hmm. mechanics. Um, something we've discussed, discussed previously is golf improvement in this type of fashion where there's a, a big focus on changing a movement pattern that we think is maybe more desirable and is almost like a player's baseline or stock swing. And there's another school of thought uh, with some great co coaches where they talk more about self-organization and differential practice, maybe suggest that there's not, there might not be a need to actually dig into what's happening mechanically. You can almost figure it out by practicing and trying to do maybe the opposite of what you're currently doing. For example, if you hit a slice, you figure out how to hit a hook um, right. and maybe less focus on what actually the body is doing, what, what the body is doing, what the club is doing, and more so focus on the flight and maybe think about the types of skills that you're building, if that makes sense. Right. So again, everyone's a little bit different and I have to speak in generalities, uh, as far as like, you know, the majority or something like that, whether it's 55% or 89% or whatever, I don't know. Um, certainly there are people out there that can do kind of a self-exploratory differentiated type practice, like hit to this target, hit to that target, hit to that target, you know, and mixing up um, that kind of thing and just, you know, doing that. Uh, I think the majority of golfers that come to me are looking to actually improve at golf and in the way of improving their mechanics. You know, they have some issues with their golf swing that they would like to fix and things that, and that's what they need help with. In some ways, what they've done, you know, if you, if let's just make up a student that I've, you know, he's like, I've been playing for 20 years. I've never had a lesson. You're the first guy I'm, I'm coming to. Uh, he's been doing the self-exploratory practice for 20 years. He's shooting 94, you know, so he's been doing the self-exploratory thing. He's been saying like, Hmm, I hit a slice. Maybe I should try to do something to hit a draw or hit a hook. You know, he's been doing that for, for 20 years. So um, a lot of golfers stink at doing that. You know, they, they are not good at self-exploration or self-practice um, or, or self-discovery. You know, the way they figure out to solve a problem is maybe not necessarily a good way to do it. Someone that's trying to hit a draw... Uh, 
there are a lot of bad ways that you could theoretically kind of try to make yourself hit a draw. You know, you could move your arms way around behind you. You could do all kinds of stuff with the grip or, or you know, rolling your hands over at the wrong times or all kinds of stuff that you could do, okay, um, that are not great. Uh, there are a lot of ways you could do it to hit it well, but the ways to hit it well tend to be like a smaller number than the ways that you could do it kind of badly. Um, so I would say that a lot of golfers have done the self-exploration thing. They've done the self-discovery thing where they've tried to solve the problem on their own. And because, like I said before, it's not their job, they may not have taken the whole into into play you know someone trying to hit a draw uh for example and i'll say this fairly often i think a lot of people swing left for two reasons for a righty um number one if you swing left or over the top or however you want to say it uh it tends to move low point forward so it's a cheat to kind of um hit the ball more solidly and number two they have an open club face and i'm not ranking them i'm just listing them so it's more of an unordered list uh, so they have a club face that's open, so the ball goes to the right, so their body tells them, oh, I should swing over here to the left to make the ball go more that way. Um, those are the two biggest reasons, in my opinion, why someone swings too far to the left or over the top or whatever. You know, they're trying to move contact and low point forward um, in their stance, and they're trying to counter an, an open club face. So, again, they've solved that problem in those ways. So if that person just goes out and tries to hit a hook, he's probably going to move low point behind the golf ball and start hitting everything fat or, or having to bend his elbows or something like that to, to hit it. It might work with the driver, but if he tries to do that same thing to hit his irons better, he might not make solid contact or at least even to his standards, solid contact for, for months or something like that. If he tries to do it that way, the way he figured out to do it. So, um, you know, again, it's almost like trying to be your own lawyer in some ways. Uh, now I do think that um, and I wrote a, an article on the sand trap about it, but basically like, and I'll have to kind of quickly define the terms, but like I look at, um, mechanical work and by mechanical, I, I don't, everyone teaches mechanics. If they teach golf, as far as like, you need to change this part of your swing, that's mechanics. We teach by feels. So I'm not saying I talk in all mechanics with students, but if we're making a mechanical change, that's changing or hopefully raising what I call kind of your baseline technique. And when I look at someone that's kind of doing a little bit more differentiated practice, or, you know, we can get into random or, you know, block or whatever, however we def want to define it almost. Um, when I look at someone doing something like that, like, okay, my wedge swing is what it is. I'm going to learn how to hit my wedges different distances. When they're looking at that, they're not really improving their technique. They're kind of improving their skill level based on that technique. So it's almost like, to me, the technique is kind of your baseline. And then you can raise that baseline up a little bit. Or sorry, not raise the baseline, but you can elevate above that baseline a little bit if you can work on your skills a little bit. So I look at it as technique versus skills. Obviously, you know, it's it's my definition of it there and you know i may not you know stick to it in five years but uh i look at you know kind of improving the base mechanics of a swing um as technique work and 
doing kind of that skill work or some of that self-discovery work, a little bit of that as raising the skill level of that technique or that baseline. Do you think maybe like a comeback to that or another way of looking at it is because I'm just thinking of some of the coaches that I know and it's interesting. Like I know some coaches mm-hmm. who, who go through things with different viewpoints and a suggestion might be that you can improve the player's mechanics without ever really explaining the mechanics to them or asking them to right. think about the mechanics but instead you set up some sort of constraint or some sort of situation or practice station, which incentivizes them to make the movement you want. But the focus is on a particular outcome with the swing. For example, they might be avoiding some barrier or head cover you've put on the ground, right. or you might put them behind a tree at, or, you know, you, you pretend they're behind sure. a tree. You set up a pool noodle if you're inside and you tell them, look, you're struggling. The, the The problem might be, and I think a lot of people can imagine this golfer, you've already brought them up, is they come over the top, they're steep and across it in the downswing. The ball has a lot of curve from left to right. They can't really play with it. And something that you could do is set up a pool noodle or get them behind a tree, for example, and you could have them, and you could suggest to them, we need this ball to start right of the tree and curl to the left. I don't mind how you do that. Let's see what you try and do. If that makes sense, rather than explaining to them, yeah, I want you to feel like your left wrist is flexing more and you're swinging more to the right. That's going to change the path and the face, etc. Yeah, and I had a student that, uh, for for example, one time uh, he came in and he's like, "I'm hitting everything." really well uh except every now and then i just get a ball that goes way left um a little bit of just a pull just went like kind of straight left just out of the blue and so i just said okay i'm just going to record a bunch of swings i want to see that shot kind of pop up and it turned out like his good shots were barely on the heel side of the center of the face right and his big pulls were i don't know almost how they weren't a shank because it must have just missed the hosel. Uh, but they were so far in the heel that the face kind of rolled over and, and, you know, the ball went just left um, hard. And, and what's funny is, like, those, he's like, they feel really solid. <laughs> they weren't. They were missing the sweet spot by, like, an inch on an iron. Um, and so, for example, with that guy, I'm like, okay, we need to move your contact to the toes. So you can actually hit it out of the center of the face. Um, his swing, he was one of my college players, so he was in season, so... Uh, and he had been working with me for a couple of years. So the swing was in a good place. He had just, for whatever reason, gotten off to where he was hitting everything in the in the heel. So we set up some stuff like that. I think we had a, um, I think I put a T to the inside. Uh, or no. Yeah, I put a T to the inside and tried to get him to hit the T and the ball at the same time. You know, so that the ball was obviously more out toward the, the toe. Um, or we might've also put a tee to the outside and said, miss the tee, but hit the ball still. So obviously couldn't catch the tee with the heel. Um, that to me falls though under the same category of like almost what I was talking about before though, because that's not self-exploration. That's exploration at my direction where the whole time they're with me, I'm kind of making them aware of what they're doing to solve the problem. So if you have the over the top guy um, and I don't want him to like, 
fake add more depth by just pulling his arms around himself to try to hit a hook, then, you know, if he solves that problem, um, certainly, like, I will have a traffic cone out there or something. We have traffic cones inside um, as aiming things because they're out there and, you know, we could say aim at that traffic cone over there and stuff like that. So I will say, okay, on this swing, do that thing with your wrist, which helps control the club face, and I'll say, but push the ball toward that traffic cone because that would generally change the person's path. You know, people think of the path as being kind of instinctual start line direction, which is why people that have an open face swing to the left. So um, I might say to someone like, okay, I want you to make the ball go toward that traffic cone, even though if they do the wrist thing properly, the ball shouldn't start that far to the right anymore because they're squaring the face properly. But it does change the path. But if the first swing they make, they drop their elbow way behind them to try to send the path out to the right, then I say, okay, hold on. So we solved that problem the wrong way. You know, that's and they're not running into another problem. Right, and they're, they're running into another problem. So that's not self-exploration per se. That's Sure. And, you know, I recommend a lot of those kinds of drills. I'll put pool noodles out. I will I will put obstructions in people's way. Um, I understand, like, external focus on things can be very helpful. But it's me specifically trying to find the feel and the picture and the, and the stuff with the student, you know. Um, to fix any given problem, I have anywhere from three or four or whatever to eight or nine or ten different ways of fixing it. And I tend to start with the ones that I think will obviously work the best for that student in that time. But um, I will tell them, I'm like, look, I'm going to try this feel or this whatever, and if it doesn't work, I'm going to try something else. You know, But we will figure out how to fix this. But that's, again, me directing them. That's me saying, like, I'm going to put this T here because, look, you are hitting every ball in the heel a ton, and so we need to figure out a way. Your mechanics are good otherwise. You're just, for whatever reason, doing this. So we need to just fix that or you you play in two weeks so we don't have the time to like worry about why you're hitting everything in the heel we just need to kind of make it better right now and then we can look at the bigger reason over the winter if there even is one so uh, there are certainly places and times for that kind of coaching um, but again I'd, I'd push back a little bit and maybe it was just your example of if I'm directing them to do it that's not self-exploration that's not self-discovery you know uh, certainly, let's say um, someone hits the ball fat, so they want to move low point forward. Let's say they don't even think, like, I just don't want to hit it fat anymore, because if golfers will solve that problem by just bending their elbows or something like that, and then low point is still behind the ball, but when they pick it just right, you know, obviously it seems like a half-decent shot. But again, they didn't necessarily solve that the right way either. But let's say they're they're smart enough to know, okay, my low point is behind the ball, so I need to move my low point forward. Well, there's a bunch of ways, again, that they could solve that incorrectly. You know, they could solve it by moving their head forward a bunch. You know, that certainly that would move low point forward. They could solve it by swinging over the top more. That would move low point forward. So there's still a bunch of ways that even if you give them an, an obstruction, you know, I've done the thing where you put a towel behind someone's golf ball and say, don't hit the towel, but hit the golf ball. And it's always interesting to see how they solve it but they don't often solve it kind of maybe the best way or the most optimal way or the, or the way that will lead to not only the best, but the fastest improvement. You know, oftentimes people will solve something um, in not a great way. So um, I still see that as in the same vein of like, it's still coach directed um, practice and stuff like that. Certainly it can help. 
Um, I tell a lot of my students, like, okay, you know, I try to make them aware of the mechanics so that they know what we're doing. I tell a lot of my students, I will always be able to answer the question, why? And the answer will never be, because it looks good. I also tell some of my students, I might not choose to answer a question at a time because I don't want them worrying about something else that's kind of unrelated to what we're currently working on. But um, students will come to me sometimes and say, oh, I, I came up with this drill. And I will say, okay, like that's a good drill, but be careful of this or that, you know. Um, be careful of if you put a towel behind your ball and just want to hit the hit the ball without hitting the towel to move your low point forward. Be careful that you don't solve it kind of in the wrong way. Keep working on kind of what we found was the right way for you to do it. And don't, you know, make your head move forward six inches during your downswing uh, to kind of cheat it or, you know, something like that. So um, they work. They can be very effective. Um, they have some of the same caveats as people trying to solve things on their own uh, as far as, like, they might solve them the wrong way. Yeah, does that go back a little bit too to what you were saying in terms of people working on their movement pattern to get their potential to another level? Because if you have someone who has a movement pattern or swing that has quite a low potential and one of the issues with their ball striking is that they hit it off the heel they might learn how to hit it more towards the center or the toe, but they're still likely to use a movement pattern that doesn't give them a very good chance of reaching their goals versus the example right. you brought up was a college player who I assume already has learned a good swing and can hit very high quality shots. It was more of, for whatever reason, they needed a minor tweak in their contact point which is maybe a little bit different to the person who is using mechanics that don't really put physics in their favor at all and make it quite difficult to ever hit the type of quality golf shots they want. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, at any level of the game, people can figure out like some bad ways to, to solve a problem. Um, people will use Jim Furyk or Matt Wolf swing as, as an example of like, Oh, yeah, you know, if, if Jim Furyk came to a lesson, you know, you wouldn't change anything. Well, some part of me wants to say, well, of course you would. He's coming to you for a lesson, like something, he wants to do something differently. He wants to do something better. He wants to eliminate this shot that creeps up from time to time or something like that, you know. Um, if he's not coming to you for a lesson because he's playing really well, of course you're not changing anything. But if he's coming to you for a lesson, he wants to do something. He wants to learn something. He wants to change something. He wants to get a little bit better. Uh, people thought Tiger was nuts, and you know we don't have parallel universes, so we can't see what would happen if Tiger stuck with his 2000 swing, if it was even physically possible for him to do so. Um, we don't know if he would have won 20 majors, or if he would have won nine, you know, if he had made a change or not made a change then. But um, people will. There's a time and a place for everything with that, and so again. You have to understand kind of the student. You have to understand the whole. You have to understand their goals. Uh, you have to understand kind of their history, uh, you know, of what they're they're working on. A lot of times with my students, I think it's it's important for me that my students understand what we're actually looking for in a lesson as far as, okay, you do this, so we're looking for this to change. So, like, for example, if someone 
uh, is swing over the top and at six from down the line, uh, their clubhead is a foot outside their hands. And exaggeratedly, you know, we want the clubhead to be inside their hands a decent bit. But at the end of the day, when they're, when they're good, uh, when they get it down, you want the clubhead to be somewhere near the hands at six from down the line, right? So it's important for me that they understand that because... Tell people what um, six is quickly because they're going to be like, is, what, what? Yeah, last shaft parallel uh, in the downswing. So when the shaft is horizontal to the ground in the downswing, your hands are generally kind of in front of your trail thigh. Uh, hopefully they're not too far behind that. And so late downswing, basically. Um, people that come over the top or swing to the left for a righty, the club head will be well outside the hands or much closer to the golf ball than their hands are uh, from down the line. And so whatever it is I'm working on, with somebody, um, I don't use, I don't teach positions in a golf swing per se, but if you stop at six, if you stop at that position, you can use it as a checkpoint to make sure that the motion that you're rehearsing or the motion that you're doing or the swing that you're producing is changing that picture. And so it's important for me too to, to teach students to understand um, what it is we're trying to change because their feels will change over time as well. You know, a feel that produces this much of something one day will change in two weeks. You know, that feel might not work anymore. So it's important for me that they, especially if they're working with a mirror or something like that, that they understand kind of the, what the right mechanics are, at least at a basic level, so that they don't get completely out of whack. Like a long time ago, and I, I've made a bunch of mistakes teaching, and you learn from them, and, and you move on, um, and hopefully adapt and grow. But like, for example, early on, I'm like, okay, a student setting up uh, with his weight way too far back. You know, he's just like leaning back. He had like 85% of his weight on, on his trail foot at setup, you know, just leaning way back. He, he was trying to like push his hips way forward, but really he was just tilting way back. So I'm like, okay, I want you to feel like you set up with a little bit more weight on your left foot. Let's go 60-40, okay? Because that feel produced about a 50-50 setup for this guy. You know, spine felt vertical. Felt like he was leaning a little to his left. Um, and so I left him with that. And, like, again, this was early on, so it was a mistake. But he comes back in three weeks or so, and he's got, like, 75% of his weight on his left foot. And he's leaning this way with his head that way. He's like, he's like, I kept doing what you told me to feel. And I'm like... <laughs> Oh, okay, right. Well, over time, right, you know, you change that habit. And so to get the 75-25 feel, you actually started to produce 75-25 uh, or something like that. So it's important that regardless of the size of the change that we make or something like that, that students understand what the parameters are for, you know, what they're changing and why. And certainly there are people that I teach that it becomes a simpler lesson where it's it's more like, okay, just feel like you're, I've certainly taught like people to draw their chip shots, you know, people to understand what that feeling is. You know, if they tend to try to cut under the ball from outside a little bit, I'll tell them to kind of hit a little hook shot with their pitches. And I'm like, okay. And we don't talk a ton about necessarily the mechanics or what that does for them because they're like, okay, I can do that. I can feel that for a while and whatever. So I might have forgotten the question exactly, but <laughs> no, that that's okay. The next one that I'm gonna and that, that does answer the question. The next one that I'm gonna move on to is similar and kind of the last question in this, I guess, vein of thought. But it's about 
there's often a question brought up that this type of practice that we've mainly been talking about, which is in quite a static controlled environment, it might be indoors in a simulator, or it might be on a range, and you brought up even it might be working on a movement pattern at home. How well does this transfer to a golf course when you're playing golf? Because the the theme that might be suggested, and I'm not saying it's not true, I think it is true, but you can dig into it a little bit more, is that when we go to a golf course, we're faced with a unique set of problems. Each shot is a special problem that needs to be solved. And it's not so much learning a swing or a stock shot. It's being able to adapt to the question that's being asked of us. And this then sort of brings up questions about practice. Well, if each shot on the golf course is a unique problem, how much benefit are we going to get from practicing in a closed static environment where we're working on a particular motion? Are we are we going to be successful if we're trying to fit a particular motion onto a unique problem? Right. And a smart guy I know pointed out that, for example, if you're talking about driving, uh, pretty much every tee shot is mostly hit off a relatively flat piece of ground, and you're basically making a similar motion oftentimes, right? Uh, you might know the guy. He teaches fitness and stuff. And and the the par, the par three tee boxes. So you, you get 18 shots per round that are all flat lies that you can tee the ball up on. Right. So it's kind and, kind of what my point was in 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 regards to this, and they're pretty important to the to the outcome of your round. right. Yeah, they are, and and so you get eighteen shots around, and you only make maybe thirty full swings around. Um, you know, you, you get close on maybe a par four or two around. Um, you have eighteen tee shots. Uh, some of those are on par threes, so you're hitting a short game shot the next time. Fourteen of those are on par fours or fives, and then you have. You know, so that's 18, you get 12 or so other shots, you know, in a round. Sometimes you get close in two on a par five, so you don't have a full swing for your third. Sometimes you get close in one on a par four, so you don't have a full swing there. So you make like 30 or 32 full swings around, and 18 of them, as you have pointed out, are from basically flat level, relatively level lies, like you would find at a driving range or indoors. So uh, I think sometimes the idea that golf is full of all this variety is a little bit misleading in the sense that, sure, you might have a tee shot on one hole where the wind is right to left, and you might have a tee shot on another hole where the wind is left to right, but you're basically doing the same thing, or probably you're doing basically the same thing. You might change where you aim, but then you just change where you aim. It's like effectively moving the mat to point over here instead of pointing over there. You still set up the same, you still kind of make the same kind of swing. Um, if the ball's below your feet, you don't completely change your swing, you know, a lot of that can be accounted for in setup. And it's important. I, I'm not going to underrate how important it is to learn what those things do. For example, I learned a long time ago that, like, I don't have to account for, I account for those things in my setup. Um, you know, I account for if, if the ball's well above my feet, uh, I figure out how to kind of aim the face in the right direction, and then I make what feels like the same kind of swing. Um, you know, it's at a the club head's, you know, a foot or two above where it normally is, and I'm standing probably a little bit more upright, but that's all accounted for kind of in setup. The feels and stuff are often pretty similar. Um, certainly, you can work on 
short game shots by doing a variety of things, you know, but at the same time, you don't drastically change your motion just because the ball is three feet over there or three feet to the right, you know. So um, if it's a similar type of shot, the mechanics are generally pretty much the same. You know, when you watch Sergio Garcia or Roy McIlroy or whatever, their swings, even though they're faced with different conditions, their swings are still basically the same every time they do it. Unless they're hitting some specialty shot, they're punching out from under something, you know, they're playing some kind of crazy thing. Um, their swings basically look the same. So, again, it kind of gets to, and again, they might be bad definitions, but it gets to the idea of technique versus kind of the skills and how you express kind of the artistry. It might be a better word um, than skill. Because I certainly, it's one of the things I work with on my college students a lot, and I stress playing a good bit with them, partly because they have to get into the season and play and shoot scores pretty quickly. Uh, and they'll work over the winter, um, oftentimes out of season, not with me, but independently and stuff based on the things that we talked about. But, you know, if you can hit an 8-iron 155, but you want to learn how to hit it 140, that's certainly a skill and an artistry thing, type of thing that you can do. You need to figure out how you can do that. You need to figure out what you do with a ball that's below your feet or above your feet. You certainly have to figure those things out. But those, in figuring those things out, you aren't completely changing your golf swing or even really changing very much. You know, you're finding one or two keys. Sometimes it's set up. Sometimes, you know, it feels like you do something different with your hands through the ball or, you know, whatever. Sometimes, but there's not like that big of a change, in my opinion, that you need to make, you know, and I don't think... Um, again, if you watch a tour player play, I don't care if they're playing the old course or if they're playing um, Southern Hills or something with a bunch of hills and side slopes or Augusta National, you know, you watch the guys swing off all kinds of uphill, downhill, sidehill lies, out of the rough, out of the fairway, to a left pin, to a right pin. Their swings basically look the same. And they know how to account for that. And once you learn how to account for that, you're still just making the same swing. So I'm still in favor, generally speaking, everyone has to do that stuff. You have to learn how to play golf. You have to learn how to be an artist, how to how to get the ball around the golf course. You have to know, okay, how do I make the ball go lower? How do I make the ball go higher? How do I hit my 8-iron 140 instead of 155 because I want to take a little spin off and flight it down a little bit? You have to know how to do those things. And the more you can do those things, certainly the better you can score. But they're, the baseline to me is always kind of the baseline technique you know the players with the better technique have the best chance of learning those small adaptations that they can make to express some of that artistry yeah maybe a way of thinking about it would be and i don't know the answer to this question but i'm and i don't I'm, either I'm just, i mean you know i'm just trying to constantly think of, trying say, to learn i'm trying to think of players that i i have seen playing or really good players that i know and i think that it's rare you see a player who has let's say what we're considering this really good baseline they're they're an excellent ball striker on flat lies or on the driving range but they completely fall to pieces on shots that are slightly awkward like uneven lies balls in the rough bunker shots things like this and i think it the reverse is also true whereas it's unlikely that you see a player who has a low baseline technique 
struggles with hitting solid, high-quality shots in general, yet they do really well adjusting to different lies. I, I don't right. think either of those things, you know, are are very debatable. I think they tend to hold true. Maybe it's a case of the higher the higher a level of golf you get and the better you get, the more important it is to be slightly better at adjusting to these variations and being able to adapt. But the higher, sorry, the lower your skill level, the higher your scores, the more you're going to get out of building this baseline and essentially learning how to get ball from A to B with a better quality mechanical swing, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's like the the fine-tune adjustment on like a microscope versus the larger gain adjustment. You know, I always kind of look at technique as the large adjustment knob, you know, you get something from out of focus to in focus pretty quickly. And then when you want to really, you know, take an extra shot or two off, you use the fine adjustment knob to, to really sharpen the image, you know, a bit. Um, yeah, I think, I think what you said is, is good. And it would be a good, uh, way to not refute. Cause that implies that it's a little bit more of like someone's right and someone's wrong and, and whatever. Cause everyone's, like I said, everyone needs all these things at different times in their, in their golf life. You know, um, you might be working on massive technique stuff with your full swing, but be doing kind of skill development and artistry development with your short game, um, or whatever. So, you know, and then two months later from, from now it might switch. So everyone needs all these things. So, um, but I liked your point there. I think that was a good and, and well said. I, I don't think, you know, if you put a tour player on an, uneven weird lie that they've almost never seen before they'll probably hit the ball better than someone that's a 10 handicapper even if that guy had a month to practice that shot yeah yeah no it's I mean, definitely that's a silly bet but but even a scratch golfer you know you give him a month to practice that shot and a tour player will probably still figure it out a lot faster and still hit it yeah. better so and it's not it's not a question of like one is right one or wrong i don't think anybody claims that it's it's more so just trying to right. get a handle on this is the level of golfer i am now this is the level of golf i'd like to get to this is how much time i have to put into it where where should i put my time you know like how right. how should i structure it? what if i want to be as good as i can be in 10 years or whatever your timeline is Am I going to be benefiting more from looking into the intricacies of technique, getting this baseline as good as possible? Or should every day I be going early morning to the golf course, getting on the back nine and practicing from practicing a variety of different shots, basically not working on right. my swinger technique. And I think that's kind of an interesting question and something we've talked about well, a lot and why, why a, I wanted to ask you about it. It's important too, uh, that, when we have these conversations on like Twitter or whatever, nobody, like a lot of people, they might be addressing people who don't want to take lessons, who don't want to mm -hmm. like practice. Maybe they just find it boring or, or they don't like it. And that's fine. Like those people probably should just do more random practice. They shouldn't just go to the range and hit balls and maybe the 30 minutes if they have it, if they have an hour to go to the range once a month and that's all they're ever going to practice. I would probably say like, yeah, do a bunch of, random stuff like learn to hit your wedge 80 yards then learn to hit it 90 then learn to hit it 60 and you know work on different kinds of skills learn to make the ball 
slice less off the tee or whatever, learn to do some of those things, kind of do some self-exploration. If, if that's the golfer that you're talking to, then my advice would often be similar to those kind of people. I tend to talk to um, the golfer who is invested because I, meaning they have the time, they want to make the bigger changes, the bigger improvements. Um, the golfers that are coming to me are paying me, so they're investing literally and figuratively both time and a little bit of money. Um, so I tend to take them as, for lack of a better word, the more serious golfers about like wanting to improve. And so I see it as using that bigger gain knob, you know, that I want to turn the technique knob to turn. But if you have a guy that uh, doesn't want to take lessons, doesn't like to go to practice, doesn't want to do that stuff, then yeah, playing on the golf course occasionally, if they have time to drop another ball down and hit another ball out of a different lie, great. Yes, definitely do that. Like, I don't have any problem with however you enjoy golf. If you're the guy, kind of guy that's never going to take lessons and just drinks beer and likes being away from, uh, you know, home for a little bit on a Saturday morning um, and hanging out with your buddies, cool. Like, if you enjoy golf, then, you know, we have something in common. So that's great. And so if you just want to get better without committing a ton of time or, or a bunch of money, then yeah, there are certainly ways to do that. And so sometimes I think that where we get off not off track or anything or, or where we start to almost, and I mean disagree in a you know polite way, where we just have a different picture of, what, of who we're talking to is sometimes I think the people that stress that kind of skill building are talking to those golfers. And I'm kind of talking to the golfers that want to you know, raise their baseline technique more um, and know that that will make the artistry, the skill side of things a little bit easier as well. So, yeah, no, that that's great. Um, moving on, you co-authored a book called Lowest Score Wins with David Wedzik, who yep. you you brought up earlier as as David. It's one of my all-time favorite golf books. It really is exceptional. How did the book come about? And what is one thing from the book you would like to share with golfers? I might I might share two things. Um, and asking to share one thing is, is, is tough because sometimes when we go back and reread it, we're like, wow, this is kind of a, a dense book as far as like there's a decent amount of information packed in pretty regular pretty quickly paced you know um i don't mean it's tough to read i mean it's it, i go back and read it and be like wow we wrote that that's that's pretty good um not the I, should, I should make clear also the the book is not about swing mechanics the book is essentially about how certain golfers score better than certain than other golfers and and everything yeah. that goes into getting your scores down basically like what an essential how-to guide if you want to drop right. this many shots, these are the things you need to be thinking about. Yeah, there's a little bit on some mechanics at, at the beginning. You know, we teach a little bit about like pitching and chipping and driving and, and speed and stuff like that. But um, you're right. It's mostly the second whole section of the book is like how to practice because it's based on what skills matter the most. You know, nobody needs to practice their one foot putts, even though you have 14 of them around, um, you know. Nobody needs to practice their tap in. So we broke the second section out into kind of a how to practice. And the whole third section is game planning and building your what we call decision map uh, and strategy and stuff like that. But Dave and I, um, like I said, I took lessons from him in 2009 or so. And 
was the first time that I realized again, like I said before, that there's cause and effect and not just like, I'm just a golf pro and I'm going to say a bunch of stuff and hopefully the guy gets better today. Um, it was the first time I realized that that was not all that there was in golf instruction. And so we have been talking about this, that writing a book like this for a long time, because a lot of golf strategy to that point was, you know, Ray Floyd had a book on strategy and, and there are other books out there. Um, Bob Rotella talks a little bit about strategy, um, obviously more from the mental side, you know, but the, most of the books on strategy were like, okay, hit the fairway. If you're in trouble, punch out sideways to get back into play. Um, oh, off this tee, well, you might want to hit a hybrid or a five iron just to get the ball in play and, and you know, things like that. And, uh, oh, you have a nine iron in your hands. You can attack the flag now, you know, and things like that. You'd hear it on TV. I mean, the classic example is try for show, putt for dough. And, you know, we all know that that's kind of BS nowadays. Um, but, you know, they were talking about on television. There were books that said this kinds of things and so on. And we're like, this is not how we play golf. Dave and I had both kind of arrived at um, how we scored and how we played golf. And Dave, uh, for those who don't know, was had status on what was then the Nike Tour. So he's played golf at a very high level, uh, certainly way higher than I've played it at, um, and way higher than most people, obviously, since uh, it's now the Corn Ferry Tour, but, you know, was the Nike Tour back when he was doing it. Um, so he's played at a high level. He worked with Mike Bender um, when he was doing that. But we talked about how we scored and we're like, okay, look, like, I don't care if my ball's in the rough versus the fairway. Most of the time, you know, the rough that we play is not us open rough. A lot of golfers actually that I know prefer to be in the rough because the ball might sit up a little bit and they can kind of get under it and, and not hit it fat. Um, you know, <laughs> they get driven nuts if they go to St. Andrews and the lies are like, yeah. you know, this, this tight and <laughs> they don't know what they're doing. Um, you know, they, they like to be in the rough. So, uh, for a lot of golfers, they were too conservative off the tee and too aggressive into the greens. And, and if one of the things I would share would be to flip that. You know, it's to be aggressive off the tee, get your ball down there, get it close to the hole. So long as you can avoid penalties or avoid hitting it into places where you have to chip out sideways or something like that. But be aggressive until you're going for the green. Then you start to be conservative. You know, you aim for the fat part of the green and so on. So to flip that. You know, too many people are conservative off the tee and then aggressive, overly aggressive into the greens. Um, so that'd be the one thing I'd teach. But Dave and I were talking about it for a while. Mark Brody's stuff started to come out, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012. Uh, it started to kind of come out where the, the long game, the full swing, whatever you want to call it, driving and approach shots were way more important than short game and putting, that stuff started to kind of come out. It wasn't formalized a ton yet. Uh, short game, uh, sorry, strokes game putting was out because that was easy to measure. It was just distance. Um, and it showed that, you know, it was starting to show that amateur golfers weren't quite as bad of a putter as they thought they were compared to pros, you know, because the pros you don't see on TV are not necessarily um, making as many eight footers as, as you think, or as many 15 or 20 footers. And so, um, there wasn't anything really out there that we felt showed people how to actually shoot good scores or change how they thought about strategy the right way. So we made a, um, like one of our classic ex examples was 
if you had to bet $10,000 against any tour player, would you choose to have a putting competition against them, or would you choose to hit shots from 180 yards out to a green with water to the left? The pro's going to dust them every time, unless they're also very good, uh, from 180. You know, they might not get one shot inside the guy, you know, out of 10. Um, they have a chance putting. You know, so, like, you see golfers go to the range. They go to the range. They just hit drivers. They, they don't have any whatever there. But you see a lot of advice about, like, oh, if you want to get good, work on your short game and putting. Well, that's not an effective, necessarily, use of time, right? There's quick gains to be made there, but not necessarily long-lasting or big gains uh, to be made there. So... We saw the early Mark Brody stuff. It aligned with what we'd been talking about uh, ourselves. And so we made uh, a Kickstarter, actually an Indiegogo um, campaign just to give ourselves a deadline. <laughs> so so instead of talking about it constantly on airplanes and stuff like that as we were driving around or flying around, uh, we had to actually do something. Um, that was successfully funded and it gave us a deadline. And um, long story short, we've sold you know over 35,000 copies at this point without having ever put it on Amazon or anything like that because, you know, we didn't we didn't ever want to because, you know, Amazon takes a decent cut and mm. we'd rather sell a, a little fewer books but make a little bit more of the profit from it. So, you know, it's done well. Um, it's sold, again, to a ton of countries. A bunch of tour players have bought it, LPGA Tour, PGA Tour, European Tour. Um, and so we've heard a lot of good things, um, almost nothing but great stuff about it and you know it's pretty old at this point too so uh, yeah, I, I recommend it to 14. golfers all the time if if you read the book you'll have a way better understanding of basically how to get better at golf what what goes into lower scores where can people find it eric we sell it online at lowest score wins if you're international it'll direct you to an ebay page just because they handle the international shipping um, i said i was going to tell you two things uh, so the second thing is just uh, expectations. And, you know, it's it's a big thing. Uh, it's one of the things I struggle to teach most to my college students because they think that, you know, if they have a 500-yard par 5, they should birdie it all the time. Well, it's still 500 yards away, and the hole's still four and a quarter inches big. So and there's still a whole bunch of stuff in the way. I make them all watch that Robin Williams skit about golf. You know, I put a pool in a sandbox and, you know, that that thing. Because uh, then I'll refer to that and be like, look, you, you're, you were 500 yards that way. If you asked an alien, you know, who'd never seen people play golf, how many shots it would take to, with this screwed up looking stick to hit a ball into a hole that's this big, four and a quarter inches big, they'd probably say 30. <laughs> and so you're ticked if you didn't do it in four, when really you played that hole really, really well and made a five. Yeah. Just be happy and move on. You know, oh, you hit your wedge to 20 feet. That's a great shot. You know, oh, you hit your seven iron to 25 feet. Phenomenal. That's awesome. You rock. You know, instead they're all ticked. And it's like, dude, you know, they're getting down on themselves for hitting awesome shots. And they're ticked that they two-putted from 25 feet. It's like, dude, you just made a par on a 195-yard hole. Yeah. Just move on. Just be happy. Like, come on. That's better than tour average. Just yeah. just move on. Just Just take your par and move on. Make a lot more pars. So expectations at all levels, scoring, how close stuff should get, you know, how good you can be and or should be. Um, there's a ton of stuff there, but um, so I'm not really saying anything specific, but certainly expectation management 
is a, is a big deal because it can make you feel better about yourself when you realize how good you actually are. You know, if you hit the green from 220, you know, a friend of mine and I, we will be like stroke skate, you know? Yeah. And it's yeah. like, I don't, I don't care if it's 40 feet away. I'm putting from 225, like go me. You know? Yeah. What's, what's so, interesting. Obviously Lou Stagner has been putting out loads of stats online about amateur golf and, I, I look at my stroke skating stuff too. And what's kind of amazing when you solely just look at figures in terms of from this distance, this is how far away from the hole a scratch golfer gets it on average from the fairway. And what you start realizing really quickly, obviously if a mid or high handicapper plays with a scratch golfer, it, it looks like good golf, which it is. But when you just see the numbers, you're like, man like that that doesn't sound very good it's like and sometimes you know when i'm looking at my app it's like hold on i had a 90 yard shot from the fairway and i hit it to like 23 feet and it's actually marginally better than the average scratch player now i don't know if those numbers are exact but it's probably something like that and you're like it's close yeah yeah and it's like man like i pulled that shot like eight yards you know like it felt terrible but oh that's actually like basically average for a zero handicap and you know if players who are maybe higher or lower skill levels than that shooting higher scores and they're trying to get from a 15 to a 10 or a 10 to a 5 like you said they often like hugely overestimate how good their shots need to be it's like no just right basically do whatever you need to to be able to hit a pot reasonably close to the hole and hopefully tap it in for par like do that a good few right. times around hopefully don't lose too many golf balls and you're you're probably yeah. going to be you know down down close to close to your scoring goals unless they're exceptional but i think that's a, a really good point yeah i have three things that i'll say but i'll hope to, i'll try to do them quickly if you want to break 80 for the first time but you can get near every green regulation near or on right you can make nine bogeys around and you only need to kind of accidentally pull one close to the hole and have a birdie or something like that twice around and you shoot 79 on a par 72 Right, so if you can just focus on getting your ball near more greens in regulation, that's a big part of like if you've never broken eighty, just get try to get your ball near more greens in regulation. Chip it to the fat part of the green, take your two putt bogey and get out of there, and maybe make a par somewhere else. And you know you can again make seven bogeys or nine bogeys with two birdies and still break eighty. You know it's not phenomenally difficult. Um, I find myself like kind of kicking myself sometimes too though like even still i know all these stats and and i know all these things but like we've all hit a shot where like you know let's say you're on a par three or you're hitting a seven iron to a to a par four or something like that and you you push it and you're like annoyed right away and you're like oh that ball's to the right it's not coming back it's not going to draw you know you're like nah you like walk up there and you're like on the fringe like 25 feet away and you're like wait a second (laughs) like Stop being an idiot. Like, I'll kick myself. You know, like, you're annoyed with the shot. You're disappointed with the shot. And yet you're like, okay, let's be real here. So um, it it was a pretty good shot, right? It was within my shot pattern. It was within my shot zone, as we call it. You know, it was was fine. You know, it wasn't, like, the perfect shot. You didn't hit it well. I was giving a playing lesson with a kid one time, and uh, the pin was way tucked front right on the screen. It's kind of dangerous. And I'm like, okay, Tim, uh, I'm going to aim 25 feet left of this hole, okay? Because if I hit it there, I have a 25-footer for birdie. 
I might make it, but whatever, I'm making par, I'm getting out of here. If I pull it, I might have 40 feet, 45 feet. I have to work a little bit, but I'm probably still going to make a par. If I push it, I might get close. You know, so I, I go through this whole thing uh, before I hit the shot. I hit the shot, it one hops in the hole for an eagle. <laughs> it was the, it like, almost like the least satisfying eagle ever because, like, he Our knew I was... One. yeah. <laughs> Right, I I mishit it. Like I did, I pushed it. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm like, as soon as I hit it, I'm like, oh, I pushed it. I did, uh, you know, I don't know if it hopped in or or barely rolled in, but it it went right in the hole for a two. And it's like someone <laughs> oh, not playing with part. me or, or that I wasn't teaching at the time, they'd be like, oh my god, that was amazing. It'd be like, yeah. no, I pushed it 20 feet, you know. So whatever. But uh, so the last thing then is just my college golfers. I'll play with them fairly often, and, and they'll be like. Some of my original ones called it Barzeski golf, but they'd be like, it's boring. But it's boring because I don't get in trouble. I kind of advance the ball. You know, I get it down the fairway, um, not too far offline. I advance the ball. I hit the green, and, you know, I two-putt a lot. Um, I don't three-putt very often. I'm a pretty darn good putter. Um, but in some ways, it gives me the freedom to hit it to 40 feet. But at the same time, you know, People are better putters than they often give themselves credit for, and they should hit it to 40 feet more often. Um, I saw a thing. Uh, I might try to find the link and, and send it to you, but uh, someone had did, done a study a year or two ago that said, like, from a certain distance, if you start to aim at, like, half the distance of your dispersion away from the hole, your actual expected strokes don't go up at all, basically, or it goes up so little. So even from, like, if your shot pattern is 30 feet wide... Uh, you should be aiming at least 15 feet away from the hole and you're, you know, to the safe side of the hole, assuming it's not in the middle of the green mm -hmm. or something. And your shot, expected shots to hole out doesn't increase basically at all. So um, you find that's true a lot. You know, we tell people, we in the book it says green and regulation is king, GIR is king, and that's important. Get on or near as many greens and around as you can, you know, probably shoot a good score and like me occasionally you'll push or pull one and it'll go in the hole or go really close or just yeah. knock it dead stiff dustin johnson hit a shot to like a foot and a half in a tournament one time and they're like in the press room afterward uh to take like a two-shot lead and then in the press room afterward they're like ah, tell us about that shot you hit on 17 that was you know you really went after that pin he goes i pulled it yeah <laughs> just deadpan dustin johnson you know, he's like uh, uh, i don't know what to tell you i pulled it yeah you know i was aiming 20 feet right it's like sometimes that happens. Yeah. You know, just because you're playing conservatively doesn't mean you're not going to make birdies. You'll still make, you might make more because you're hitting more greens and leaving yourself putts. And even if you hit it to 25 feet, you might make one of those. So, yeah, no, that's great. Eric, last thing. What options do golfers have for working with you? I know you said you're in Erie, Pennsylvania. Do you have an online coaching option that people can yeah. kind of avail of? Yeah. I have uh, I teach as I said at in Erie, Pennsylvania at Golf Evolution, and certainly we have people that will travel, oftentimes for like to work on the gears system that I have. Um, but if they want to teach or if they want to be taught online, I teach at evolver.com, e v o l v r.com. There's no second e in there at the end, so e v o l v r.com. Um, I have a number of students on there that. It's always interesting to work with people online. Uh, it's tough because you're not there to like whatever. So you have to be really careful about what you say and and what you how you communicate with them, you know, because they're then going to take that stuff and go work on it for like two months, maybe or or even two weeks or something. And you want to make sure they're doing it right right away. 
Um, I post a lot on the sandtrap.com that I own. Uh, there's a lot of instructional information there, and I certainly encourage anyone to debate with me. I say that no eureka moments come when someone says, oh, I agree with you. Eureka moments come when someone says, I think you're wrong and here's why. And then that's an instant opportunity to upgrade your knowledge. If someone can say, here's, you're wrong and here's why. Um, bam, you could learn something, you know, so that's great. Um, Twitter and Instagram at IACAS. So stands for Iadora Carrie Dina Smith, <laughs> my wife. So uh -huh. um, IACAS on Twitter and Instagram. And then the book, again, is at lowestscorewins.com. Brilliant. Eric, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to getting this episode out. All right. Talk to you soon.